It's the 7th of February, 2015, and this is episode 185. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the new digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief here at LTV. Today, I'm joined by Andreas M. Antonopoulos and Stephanie Murphy as we explore the situation in Athens, Greece, following a recent series of dramatic events. After the break, we join LTB correspondent Grant Strack as he catches up on the BitSquare project, now running a lighthouse campaign. You can find the links to that in the show notes for this episode. And I wanted to mention up front that things are getting rolling over at the letstalkbitcoin.com forums. If you haven't already jumped in or if you were active earlier but kind of trailed off as we were working on other projects, head over to letstalkbitcoin.com and click the forums button at the top. Also, if you have an early token that we gave out to everybody in September, I'm publishing early drafts of my first fiction project in the Founder Forum, as well as a personal blog. I look forward to talking Bitcoin with you real soon. But first, Greece. Let's get into it. Many of you probably know that my ancestry is Greek, but most do not know perhaps that my family lives in Greece. My my father lives in, in Athens, as does my mother, my extended family, uncles, aunts, cousins, and a whole bunch of friends from high school where I went in Greece still live in Athens. A lot has been happening lately. A lot of both dramatic and tragic things in the past five years as Greece has had this absolutely horrific economic catastrophe. More recently, some really sudden changes that I think are quite interesting. I found myself about eight months ago on an Australian radio show having a conversation about Bitcoin. As many of these public media conversations go, they invited a Bitcoin skeptic to balance the conversation. And I I use the word balance within air quotes. And so they had invited, uh, in fact, a fellow Greek to balance the conversation about Bitcoin, a very well-known blogger and economist who talks about a lot of interesting things and is very involved in in high technology uh, in economics from Greece, a fellow Greek, Mr. Yanis Varoufakis. Now, if that name sounds familiar, that's because following a sudden election forced on by the failure to elect a constitutional president in Greece, a uh, party from kind of what was not part of the bipolar consensus parties in Greece, you know, we've had very much the, the familiar alternating pattern of two parties alternating power every four to six to eight years, and promising to change and, and marching inexorably in the same direction, what in the US I call the choice between red Goldman Sachs and blue Goldman Sachs. Uh, we have something very similar in Greece, only it's also entwined with two family dynasties. In Greece, a member 
of the Papandreou family has been in some form of government for the last 90 years. Well, all of that changed with the election of Syriza just a few weeks ago, I guess. And that was a pretty big election. Regardless of what you may think of Syriza, the sudden change from a bipolar electorate environment where only the two parties keep alternating power to one in which a third party rises and takes a full, pretty solid electoral mandate and majority was pretty shocking. Within a week, the cabinet was announced and the blogger and economist I debated eight months ago is now the finance minister of Greece. I was quite surprised to find myself sharing Skype contacts with the finance minister of my home country, who I debated on the radio about Bitcoin. It was kind of funny. Now we're in the situation where Mr. Varoufakis is going around Europe saying no a lot to some of the plans offered by the European Central Bank and the European Union and the so-called Troika, the uh, collaboration between the Central Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the European Union. A lot of interesting things have been happening in Greece lately. We've uh, arrived at a situation where there is an impending crisis on February 28th with the termination of the current series of uh, funding agreements for the Greek banks. The European Union is now threatening Greece with imminent bankruptcy. I think Varoufakis said it best when he said, you know what, we're already bankrupt. I would say most Greeks feel that way already. So I wanted to provide a bit of perspective. This has been a bit of a wild ride, especially since this issue affects me quite personally, my family still being there. Uh, One of the things I have to consider right now is that where my family needs to send money abroad to support other members of the family who are in various countries around the world, what happens if there is, as expected, a massive increase in currency controls and a run on the banks, a Cyprus incident, as we would call it, and whether I can help my family use Bitcoin to do foreign remittances. That will be a rather interesting topic, which I may have to talk about in an upcoming episode. Have you ever tried to you know, help them use it, introduce them to it, sent them any Bitcoin? Well, yes. I mean, my, my dad and my mom both own some Bitcoin. They don't really know what it is. They haven't been able to use it. Both of my parents are uh, users of non-smartphones, so feature phones. I think my dad has an old Android version, I think it's version 3 OS, which means that you can't really run any of the modern Bitcoin wallets. This problem I've run into again and again, which is older versions of Android can't run any of the current wallets. I wasn't able to install a Bitcoin wallet on his phone. So as a result, they have some passing familiarity with Bitcoin. They've obviously seen my involvement in it. They they each have a copy of my book. Uh, But uh, that's not going to help them because both of my parents are from a generation where cell phones, smartphones, and desktop computers are still extremely new to them. uh, And they struggle to do basic things like send email. I'm not expecting them to be able to pick up on Bitcoin, but you know, necessity is the mother of invention. If my dad needs to send money abroad in the next few months and there's currency controls, he might have to learn about Bitcoin pretty fast. 
you know, I might have to find some trusted intermediaries in Greece who can help him convert euros cash into Bitcoin so that he can extract them out of the country. So the thing that struck me about what's been going on in Greece for the last, I guess, month is really when things have been heating up after the failure to elect the president and then the subsequent election. Nothing has changed from, you know, four years ago. We've had two Greek bailouts. And the problem actually, as far as, you know, debt to GDP, Greece is worse off now than they were before each of these two bailouts. And so it's kind of interesting to watch this whole thing go down. The party that is in power now is really only in power because all of the major parties had the opportunity to remedy the problem as the country saw it. And given the opportunity, did exactly what the party before them had done because politics the situation in Greece is not different than in much of Europe or even in much of the United States. It's just much further accelerated and it's a little bit more exaggerated than it is here. From your conversations, do you think that this sort of thing, that cryptocurrency or any sort of these things can offer anything? I mean, like it seems like it can be kind of a safety valve or if you just you don't want to be in the euro, then it could work. But I mean, it just seems like this is just a problem that has to sort itself out. Yeah, I, I don't think cryptocurrencies are really um, that relevant to the situation in Greece because the, the problems are much broader than currency. The problems were brought on by, among other things, the European Union currency zone. But that was... But isn't that a monopoly? Yes, but that was just a, a small factor. In essence, what that did is it, it removed the ability of Greece to control its own monetary policy. So as a result, when it would have been advantageous to Greece to devaluate its currency, which would allow for more tourism revenue and things like that to balance a slowing economy, it wasn't able to do so because doing so would have pushed Germany into hyperinflation. That's the essential challenge with the European zone. Barring the ability to have labor movements internally to balance out disparities in the economies, when you lock in the monetary policy as the average of all of the different countries, you're going to have some countries that are experiencing growth that is pushing towards inflation, while at the same time other countries like Spain and Ireland and Greece are basically have a massively expensive currency to deal with that is not helping any of their current accounts and trade balance situation. That's the essential problem there. If you've lived in Europe, you understand that despite the fact that there's open borders, being able to move in terms of labor mobility is very different than it is here in the United States. Federalism works in the United States because people effectively can move a lot easier. Even a family with very few resources can pack everything in a car and move south or move east or move west and cross a couple of states and find some other employment opportunities. It's not easy, but it's a hell of a lot easier if you need to do that than if you do that in Europe, where you would be speaking a different language. You know, if you arrive suddenly in Germany and you're coming from the eastern part of the continent, you'll be treated like the crappy poor cousin from the east. Your job prospects aren't going to be that great. So as a result, if you have no labor mo mobility, the currency becomes much more oppressive in its restrictions. It's an interesting situation, but I mean, the really important thing to realize here is that all of the previous governments in Greece removed the most important negotiating weapon 
from the table in advance. And that, that negotiating weapon was the possibility of default. You know, when you have a bond, the bondholders take a risk, and the risk they take is that the bond payments won't be made and there'll be a default. By removing that as a negotiating tactic, it greatly weakened the position of the previous governments. This one has come in and is not removing that or any other negotiating tactics from the table. And as a result, there is a conversation happening now that didn't happen for the past five years. I think it's important to realize that, you know, for the past five years, Greece hasn't been bailed out. Right. Big air quotes around that. The Greeks haven't been bailed out. The Greek banks have been bailed out. Right. And the Greek banks were bailed out so that they could continue paying their debts to other banks, which have been backed up by the ECB. And the Greek government was bailed out so they continued to make interest payments on the debt. In that vice, Greeks were caught in a situation that hasn't been seen in Europe since war times, where the economy has completely and utterly collapsed in every sector of the economy. For many Germans, this is just because the Greeks are, you know, lazy tax evading parasites. And then the Irish are lazy tax evading parasites. And the Spaniards are lazy. You know, you keep adding to that list. And eventually you say, well, you know, are Germans the only decent citizens in in Europe? Because it seems to me like the idea here is that everybody's a lazy tax evading parasite. That's not an answer. That's That's evading the basic issue. Well, it seems like they're sort of artificially grouped together in an economic system that maybe Germany doesn't want to be a part of. It's hard to talk. Well, but they do actually. They they actually, Germany benefits from it too. It's just that it's it's like there are a few people within this sort of environment that benefit, but it's just like any sort of one size fits all solution is unless you are very close to that, you know, that ideal average that it was designed for, then probably it, yeah, fits you, but it fits you badly and doesn't actually accomplish the purpose. Right. I mean, think you've got to understand that the European Union, currency union, is a financial solution to a political problem. The political problem is European war over centuries and the possibility of repeating that war between the French and the Germans, the French and the British, the Germans and the British, and all of the other countries within Europe. And essentially, the European currency union is designed to bind everyone into a common currency so that they cannot wage war on each other. Behind the scenes, that's always been the basis of the European Union. Its currency union is simply a financial solution to an underlying political stalemate that arose out of the Second World War. And it has generated peace. I mean, it creates a situation where the continent is now more homogeneous and integrated than it's ever been. The problem is that money as a political tool tends to have very, very nasty side effects. Can you explain why that actually is the case? Why a currency union is a viable solution and why it wasn't just people being tired of war or there not being good enough economic reasons to go to war? I'm not, I mean, like if everybody was using gold as a currency, I don't see why that would stop anyone from going to war with somebody else who's using gold. Oh, no. I mean, the the currency union is simply uh, one more extension to the idea of the very, very close and broad European Union that in itself was a political solution. So it's a marriage. It's a, it's a marriage that uh, is political and a symbolic entanglement. But in reality, there's not anything more than right. that. You don't get uh, commitment and monogamy because of the joint bank account. But the solution to commitment to monogamy, which is marriage, eventually leads to a joint bank account. 
is that really a good enough reason? I mean, like, I'm I'm curious what you think about the euro. Like, is there a way that it could have been implemented where it would have been right and where it would have actually served a purpose for the the many and varied users? It just seems like having one currency that is generic over all of these different use cases and all these different situations has to have, you know, kind of negative outcomes built into it for people who aren't that, you know, targeted ideal. It's about as good a solution as a joint bank account and marriages in a relationship that's falling apart, but you do it anyway for the good of the children. <laughs> it turns into a disaster, right? I mean, that's that's the whole point. And, you know, Britain on the side there is invited with open arms to participate in the currency union. And they say, you know what? I'd rather keep it to dating for now. Let's Let's just keep dating, keep an open relationship. It's kind of funny because what happens is that what starts off as a good idea that acquires a momentum of its own. You got to realize that the European Union, which brought tremendous benefits to many of the countries, including Greece, over time, the problem is that as power is accumulated within the European Union and centralized, it acquires a momentum of its own and it starts doing things that have now confused the means for the ends. The end was a closer political union to smooth out differences within Europe and create prosperity for all. The means was the bureaucratic structure of the European Union. Eventually, people forget about the ends, and they think that the whole point of this is the bureaucratic European Union, and then it acquires a power of its own. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and starts accumulating power for power's sake. It accumulates centralization for centralization's sake. And before long, you've completely forgotten why you're doing all of this, but you're just pushing ahead because it seems like a good idea. And now we're seeing this experiment essentially collapse. And Greece is not scary because Greece is going to create a currency problem within the European Union. Greece is scary because Greece is not alone in this predicament, and it's providing a solution template or a disaster template, depending on how you look at it, for the other countries that are watching closely. If Greece says, you know, we're going to default, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, and a bunch of other countries say, oh, really? So that's an option? And there goes the union. The problem is this is giving people ideas that a bureaucratically imposed austerity program that is based on kind of arbitrary rules and enforced from a distance is not the only option. And that option has failed resoundingly in Greece. It's failed to generate growth. It's failed to alleviate the problem. It's failed to even reduce the debt. All it's done is kill the economy completely, escalated the debt even more, and brought Greece to a nothing-to-lose brink of this current crisis. Today's magic word is euro. That's E U R O. Euro. You've got until the 11th of February to visit letstalkbitcoin.com and the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Okay, so winners of the Age of Cryptocurrency book giveaway, picked randomly from the top 100 most active members in the audience in the last week, are, drumroll please, 
Joy Now. That's J O Y N O W. Joy Now. The user Joy Now. The user Toro Pigeon. T O R O P I G I N. And user Gagarin. G A G A R I N. Check your wallet. You should find a The Age token in it by the beginning of the 8th. Take that token to letstalkbitcoin.com, click the sponsor option at the top, click through the agreement, and click where it says podcast sponsorship. Now select prize redemption and the age of cryptocurrency book. Fill out the shipping information and when prompted, send your the age token, that's T-H-E-A-G-E token, to the address that we ask to finalize the redemption. Why use the token? Because maybe you're not in the United States, but you have a friend who is. You can give them the token and they can redeem it, or you can trade it for another token. Whatever. It's yours to figure out. The last day to redeem your token for a copy of the Age of Cryptocurrency shipped to you in the continental United States is the 14th of February. That's a week from the day the winners are picked, so don't wait too long or you'll find yourself with an expired token. The question always is, what is the alternative to to what we've done, to what has happened? Why was that a better choice for Greece than whatever the alternatives were? And it seems like the alternative, you know, again, if the possibility of divorce is disallowed, then I guess that works. But to a certain extent, you can't stop someone from leaving you. And it seems like it's much the same in, in this situation with Greece and the euro. I don't think leaving is the goal. You know, the the goal is creating an environment where Greece's economy can live again. And the, the population didn't disappear, the productive capacity didn't disappear, the wonderful tourism destination didn't disappear. What disappeared was the conditions in which any of that can work. Again, you know, this is the difference between means and ends. The end is to have a Greece that is not destroyed unto three generations or chopped up and sold piecemeal to the highest bidder for scraps. The goal is to have a Greece that can recover economically in this generation without destroying everything. And what are the means that lead to that end? Don't know, but certainly the current program wasn't producing that outcome. It was producing the indebted onto three generations without any possibility of improvement in a kind of economy that was falling apart. Greece is Detroit on a larger scale. What if defaulting on those bonds just needs to happen, if anything? I mean, it may be painful in the short term, but it seems like that's the natural state of things. Well, that's what I mean by divorce, you know? It's the unspeakable thing right now in this particular if situation. That serves the goal, the goal being to produce better outcomes for everyone involved, sure. But the government in Greece was not elected to just petulantly say f you to the Bundesbank and default on the loans. That wasn't the purpose. It may have to do that in the long run in order to get a better deal but it wasn't elected to do that. It was elected to offer a different solution. And to represent the Greek people, and to, and to actually you know, follow through on what it was that they thought should be done, which is an end to the austerity that wasn't necessarily working, and that was just making the situation worse. So, I mean, like, that's the point, is that if you don't, you, know, you said it in the beginning, if you don't have the full range of options available to you, the option to default, if that's not even an option for consideration, then what leverage does Greece have? 
to a certain extent that, you know, holding a gun to their own head. Well, yeah. And, and in fact, you know, I think part of this equation you've got to realize is that the Greek people are proud of their sovereignty. So when they have the entire European Union delivering propaganda messages with, you know, the head of the ECB saying, you'd better be careful and vote correctly, and offering this doom and gloom scenario if the Greeks elected a party that opposed the current austerity program, um, I think a lot of Greeks said, you know, you can't tell us how to vote. You can't, that is an unacceptable intrusion into the sovereignty of the nation. And so, you know, some would argue Greece has no sovereignty because it has no money, but that's not how uh, people see their own. Well, that's not how sovereignty works. Self-determination, exactly. And and so to go to the oldest democracy in the world and say, you have to vote correctly, and this is the correct vote, and if you don't vote correctly, there will be consequences, that provokes a certain reaction. And in fact, gave Syriza an incredibly uh, strong mandate in this election. I was just curious if anyone in all of Europe is ever talking about evolving beyond these control structures and governments like is is anyone talking about liberty anarchism whatever you, voluntarism whatever you want to call it I mean, it just seems like so political so bound up in all these power structures top down hierarchies if we're talking about sovereignty or self determination nobody has that if they're still being ruled over by these governments who are imposing stuff like austerity measures and things like that and people thinking it makes a difference, really, who they elect or vote for. Of course they're talking about these things. Not only are they talking about these things, that conversation has existed longer than the United States. It's always been an extremely rich and varied conversation. It exists in every aspect of European societies and almost all European societies. And in fact, if you're born in that society... Politics is discussed more openly. It's not considered a taboo subject. It's discussed by all stratums and all ages. More importantly, the conversation is much, much broader. The range of what is considered acceptable political conversation and debate, it's always struck me how narrow it is in the United States. The range of opinion varies so little and I'm not just talking about mainstream media, even more broadly. You see, for example, here, conversations about what is capitalism versus what is socialism. And it's essentially, you're talking about two very, very slightly differing versions of corporate socialism versus corporate capitalism with a slight difference in the allocation of power. Whereas when they talk about socialism in Europe, it means something very different from what it means here. So I would say, yes, that conversation is happening. There are strong libertarians, there are strong anarchists, there are strong communists, there are strong opinions on every side of the political spectrum. And it's, a, in fact, a much broader, more vibrant conversation in Europe than, it, than it's ever been here in the United States. Thank you for bringing this up, Andreas. This is a topic I've been following with a lot of interest. To anybody out there who's looking for updates, keeptalkinggreece.com has good English language, kind of on-the-ground stuff. Here's the other thing that people need to be very, very well aware of. There is a very dangerous other path, and that path has been seen across Europe, and it is the rise of fascism. In these conditions, 
what has happened across all of the countries where austerity has been practiced at its most extreme form is the rise of fascism. And one of the things we've seen by the um, Syriza government is they're making a very good argument that says a treaty is not something you continue to follow if that treaty is going to lead to a complete disaster of the social contract, because that is exactly what happened with the Treaty of Versailles. It was a completely untenable debt situation for Germany in World War I. It led to a horrific economic disaster within Germany, which then led to the rise of the Third Reich. It led to the rise of Nazism. And in Greece today, the third or fourth largest party in the last election was a neo-Nazi party. And I think it's been described by the current government. Uh, one of the things they said is, be very careful. This is not a neo-Nazi party. This is a Nazi party. It is exactly the same imagery, the same ideology, the same propaganda. This is not just happening in Greece. It's happening in France. It's happening in Spain. It's happening in Italy. It's happening all across the European continent. And the reason it's happening is because extremist movements are the outcome of desperate people who need a scapegoat and the latent fascist tendencies in any society boil up and take over. This is the alternative. You know, this is the other route, and we want to not go there. Because just two years ago, the Greek government broke up a cadre of mid-level colonels and police force sergeants and chiefs who had been training paramilitary forces in rural Greece and had a very, very broad network, very carefully coordinated with the Nazi party of Greece who were basically training a paramilitary in order to enact a coup d'etat and take over the government by force. This is not just a theoretical fear. This is not just a conspiracy theory. This is the rise of fascism in Europe all over again. And arguably, you could say the very purpose of the European Union was to create the conditions that made that outcome impossible. And in its latest crisis, it has created exactly the outcome it was trying to avoid. Which sort of seems to be par for the course. I mean, like in terms of the machinery functioning for an amount of time, then we forget what it was supposed to do in the first place. And the people who are using it now and operating the levers are no longer operating them for the purpose of the system, but rather for their own benefit. And then eventually the system breaks down because it's being improperly used. And then you have the opposite result. So yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. Like that's just the that's just the reality. You can look at the unrest, you know, the, that's been certainly hyped up, but is still real. That's happening all over the world, and it's what it is. It's desperate people facing increasingly desperate circumstances and finding that they're not that vested in the system. And if they have little to lose, then who cares? And I saw it with my eyes when I was last in Greece. These political manifestations of extremism that you see in modern democratic societies are extremely scary because. A lot of the uh, populations lacking any perspective on history are lulled into believing that this could not happen here, that this could not happen now, that fascism is something you read about in the textbooks, a story of the past. But in fact, fascism has been with human societies for as long as human societies have existed under every possible name. In ancient Greece, Two, three thousand years ago, it was called tyranny. 
oligarchy, despotism, but it was the same basic thing. And we see it recurring again and again and again in cycles over history. And just because it happened in the 20th century doesn't mean it can't happen in the 21st century. And if you ask the citizens of Germany in 1930, or even better in 1900, if they consider themselves a civilization that was above such petty extremism, you would find broad, broad agreement. You know, these things happen very quickly in societies that are put under stress, and the same preconditions almost always lead to the same outcome. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to send bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's episode also received support from an LTB listener who's been using a Ledger wallet recently and asked that we talk about it. Quote, A couple of weeks ago, I bought a Ledger wallet from ledgerwallet.com. I liked the wallet and the security features. I got in touch with the CEO, Eric, and he was really helpful with me sorting a USB stick as a spare. I love companies that offer good service and after-sales care, end quote. Personally, I watched the Ledger Wallet initialization demo on YouTube, and it looks pretty cool. Basically, it's two-factor authentication for your wallet with a recoverable seed and some features built around its physicality. So, for example, when you plug in via USB and try to unlock the wallet, if you get the pin number wrong, you have to actually physically remove and reinsert the USB to get another password attempt. So there isn't really a way that any malware could brute force such a password since it won't be, you know, inserting and reinserting this card. Similarly, since you can recover your wallet from a 12-word seed, if you lose your keychain on the street and someone tries to break your pin, they only get three attempts before the device wipes itself and you have to actually reinitialize from that seed. So far, I haven't gotten much into hardware wallets myself, but I think that 2015 is probably going to be the year that's going to change. If you want to learn more about this particular wallet, L-E-D-G-E-R-Wallet.com, LedgerWallet.com. And now, the BitSquare Project. Its aims, intentions, and Lighthouse campaign. What makes something like BitSquare different from centralized exchange? You can sort of map it onto something like local Bitcoin. So this is going to be for peer-to-peer exchanges of Bitcoin for fiat currency. And the name, in fact, BitSquare is sort of inspired by the idea of these Satoshi squares that some people have hosted, where people can just trade cryptocurrency for fiat in person. But what it does that's a little bit different is it takes it online. It's a distributed network of people without a central server who can put offers to sell or offers to buy Bitcoin for currency and then accept the opposite offer. So if you're looking to buy Bitcoin, you see an offer for Bitcoin and you're selling some particular payment system, say Dwala or something, you accept that person's offer. And then the Bitcoin goes into a multi-sig account, which locks it in there. And that's on the blockchain. I think another important thing to think about both with um, Lighthouse and with BitSquare, is that we're really not innovating a new technology beyond Bitcoin. I mean, we're using primitives in Bitcoin that have existed. And multi-sig addresses are a Bitcoin primitive that allows you to create an address in which you need two of three, for example, signatures to spend those coins. So in, in our case, the two of the signatures are the buyer and the seller. And the third would be an arbitrator that two parties have agreed on in advance. That's sort of it in a nutshell. And then, I mean, the happy path is that the, the cash or the national currency is sent to the seller of the Bitcoin. Bitcoin receives it, releases it, signs the transaction to release those Bitcoin, and then Bitcoins are transferred. It's only in the case of some dispute about whether the money was transferred that you would actually get the arbitrator involved. So otherwise, it's, it's actually just between two people. 
tell me where BitSquare is right now as a company and the status of your Lighthouse campaign. We're ongoing with our testing. So we're in a, an alpha phase, a 0.1 alpha, but now what we're crowdfunding for is the 0.2, which has a, an additional set of features in our roadmap. And that primary feature that is going to be in point two is that just to add a permanence of orders. Right now, we have a system, but we haven't implemented the system for storing orders for people who are not online at the time. That's probably the biggest thing that you're lo- that we're looking forward to in the in the point two release that's, I would say, being worked on now is sort of what we're shooting for with some other features that are in our roadmap online. That's what the crowdfunding is for. Last time you talked to Adam, you were just about to start the Lighthouse campaign, and I know now it's started. Can you give me an update on how that's going and how it's enhancing your progress towards your end? We're actually really happy so far with how the Lighthouse campaign is going. I mean, it's very new. Uh, we're one of the very first projects to sort of take it on. So we weren't sure how it would go, but we've actually gotten a lot of support from the community. We've, we were really happy to get donations both from Mike Hearn and also Olivier uh, Jensen. He supplied some of the funding for Lighthouse for Mike. So those pledges to our campaign are a real vote of confidence that we're, we're really happy to see. That's absolutely fantastic. I'm happy to hear that for you guys. So can you tell us what is the roadmap for your Lighthouse campaign? So the campaign that's running right now goes until February 9th, and we're asking for 120 Bitcoin. And I think last time I checked, we were at about 26%, and we had, I want to say, 31 pledges at this time. So of course, it's going to be tight. You know, we're really counting on the community to step up and give to help make this possible. But the other aspect of this, which I think is important for people to understand, is we're not asking for the full amount to fund the entire project. We're asking for incremental steps along the way. We're, We're hoping that this sort of what we call incremental crowdfunding gives the community confidence in our ability to deliver each milestone. Can you kind of give me an example of some of those milestones and what's coming up in the future? Sure got point one, so you can download the point one version. That's what we've sort of self-funded. And that has the offer book and it allows you to register an account, etc. What it doesn't have is arbitration supported. So we right now, when we're testing it, we just use just online basically just sort of type to test it to say that money is transferred. But it does hold Bitcoin in the multi-sig. What we're going to see in point two is going to be more along the lines of making the offers more persistent and also adding some data protection to the DHT. So um, it's the same technology technology that they use in BitTorrent. So that's that's the sort of underlying P2P mechanism that we're using. Then there's also more work to do with just the automatic manual port forwarding, things to make it easier and more more robust on different networks. And you can anybody can go to bitsquare.io and look at our roadmap if they want a little more details and GitHub. The project's fully downloadable and compilable on GitHub as well as the executable. So it's going to be an application that runs on your computer and you can download that now for Windows, for the Macintosh and for Linux. And then Point three, you know, the further off we get, you know, some of these things can change. Where iterative also means that we're going to take feedback after this crowdfunding and see what people are really asking us for when we before we do the next iteration. Have you guys gotten feedback from your testing phases? What's gone wrong and what's gone well about this process? Yeah, doing a P2P application is tricky. For instance, just getting out of your home network is something that all P2P applications have to handle in one way or another. We actually were stymied on that for a couple of weeks. You know, that's that's just one of the bumps in the road. And we're still trying to get feedback from people if they can't get out of their network, you know, to make sure our discovery process is, is okay and works. You know, that's a kind of thing that you run into with a app that maybe you don't run into if you're 
you're running a, a hosted website. We've got more of the trade protocol that has to be defined. That's probably the biggest contribution. I mean, if you can look at something like the BitSquare application is really just a reference client for a trade protocol, which defines how the peers interact and interact with the blockchain in such a way to, to make the trade successful and to prevent fraud. I mean, that's in any situation like this, you need to have enough checks and balances in place that there's no possibility for fraud because that, that's certainly highest priority. But yeah, I mean, the further in you get into the milestones, you know, there's a lot to do with the arbitration and the arbitrators and making the UI for that, you know, payouts with a third key. I mean, there's the, you, you really should just look at the roadmap. It's complex, but I really want to emphasize the, the important thing is not going to change. And that is that it is person to person and that the security is basically guaranteed by the blockchain and arbitration. And the reason we need arbitration and anytime you're dealing with the legacy banking system, there really needs to be this third party arbitration. I mean, you can try to finesse it in various ways, but many of us have given a lot of thought to this problem, agree that this is the direct path doing a decentralized peer-to-peer exchange. That's really the core of what we're doing. I really loved in your last interview, you talked about how exciting it was to be on the forefront of making a true peer-to-peer exchange. What have you learned along the way that is helping you refine BitSquare into a better technology? Well, my excitement only grows the more we go into this. And, and I really see a growing momentum in this whole field of what somebody called like community-owned applications in a way, because there is no central company. This What we're building is something the community will make real. I'll give you a little bit of a slightly into the future look on how this will work. And it's it's slightly into the future because I'm, I'm going to do this from the Swedish perspective. Sweden has a, a little bit of a different banking system, I would say, than the U.S. And, and non-reversible payments are much easier to accomplish. And one thing they have, for instance, is something called Swish. It's just an app. It's, it's sort of like a PayPal, but you do it on your cell phone. And with Swish, you you would have a phone number and a name, and you would tie that into your bank account. It's And it's done through the banking system. It's very secure. But if you wanted to send somebody national currency, you just phone number. So with that in mind, you would go to BitSquare. Let's say you found an offer for Bitcoin you'd like to take. Previously to getting onto BitSquare, you would register in a, in a way that is hashing your information. So it's not publicly shown on the network, but you're, you're doing it in a way so that you can't create multiple accounts sort of a fraud prevention mechanism. But I won't go into those details. I really encourage people to read the white paper to get some of those details. But you're registered now with your, say, phone number and name. This is your banking details. When you accept the offer that those banking details are sent to the person selling the Bitcoin in an encrypted way, and you get their information too to confirm they are who they say they are. So their Bitcoins are now locked in a multi-sig with your public key, their public key, and a mutually agreed arbitrator's public key. Now they're just waiting for you to take their details, their phone number and name, and send them the cash, send them the kroner. So you would do that. It would say, you know, send 100 kroner to such and such phone number. And you would do that and you would get a receipt. Actually, that's one of the nice features of that particular payment system. You'd get a, a number sh- showing that it happened. And if it's the happy path, if, if all goes well, then that person happily sees the cash in their in their account and they push a button on their BitSquare application, which releases the Bitcoin to you and you're done. In the case where maybe they went on vacation, maybe, you know, somebody was a little irresponsible and they, they didn't complete the trade. You've sent them the cash, but have not received the coin. You would get in touch with the arbitrator and that that would be done through the application and they would get in touch with both parties and try to figure out what happened. So part of how you would fund that arbitration is the amounts are still to be determined, but there would would be some sort of a security deposit that each trader would also deposit into this multi-sig address, which would be used to pay for arbitration and would be refunded in the case of a happy trade. So does that give you sort of a a high level view of what what we're doing here? Yes. If I could go on and I want to buy some Bitcoin from somebody internationally, Are there any legal issues that you guys foresee with that? 
because it's peer-to-peer? Well, every banking jurisdiction is going to have different rules. And we're, you know, we're not going to be the lawyers who advise people on what they can do in their particular jurisdiction. I mean, we're what we're going to do is produce a tool and then step away and let the tool run. This is a little bit how BitTorrent runs. I think from our standpoint, because we're not a Coinbase, and, and this is, this has advantages. This, is, this isn't just us getting out of legal responsibility. The advantage by us not being in the center is you can't get the, the NSA can't come to us or come to one of the arbitrators and say, give me, you know, give me your registered user base and tell me what transactions have occurred. Privacy is going to be a very important component of this. You will know who you traded with, but nobody else will know that information. There is no person in the middle who, for instance, as Coinbase has been reported, stopped transactions or canceled accounts because they didn't like the way people were using their Bitcoin. And that's that's where something like BitSquare is, is really trying to fulfill Satoshi's dream of a truly peer-to-peer financial system so that you don't have governments coming in and telling people what they can or can't do. And, and one other thing I just want to throw in there when you're talking about sort of comparison with central Bitcoin exchanges is a lot of what you've seen with the Mt. Goxes and the, the various hacks, that is because these central places are also a central target. But with a distributed peer-to-peer system, you don't have any one central target. I mean, everybody is responsible for their own private keys and it, it reduces the incentive for people to be hacked or, or for large-scale hacks. So I think that's a big motivation for us as well. Excellent. Thank you. That is much more clear for me to understand now. So can you remind everybody where to go to help you guys out with this awesome project you're working on? Go to bitsquare.io slash crowdfunding, and it'll tell you all about the campaign and how to do it. The mechanics are pretty simple. You'll you'll download the Lighthouse application, and then you'll download our project file, and you just import the project file into the application, and you'll, you'll have a wallet. You can put money in there and transfer that to the Lighthouse and pledge it via Lighthouse to Bitsquare or any, any other project. There's many, many good projects right now using Lighthouse, and I really encourage people to, to learn more about that too. You said with both BitSquare and Lighthouse that you download a client onto your computer and then you're loading up the project. That's I've never experienced something like that before. So what is the advantage of doing that? That's a good question. I mean, that gets to what it means to be a peer-to-peer application. When you pledge to Lighthouse there, you're not going through a card or some central person or organization that holds those funds. And part of that is if not having a web page. I mean, there is a web page run by um, Mike Kern that is a gallery for different projects. But as much as possible, he actually doesn't want there to be a central gallery. Uh, for instance, Reddit has a nice gallery of lighthouse projects. And this this just goes to the decentralization. If you have centralization, if you had a central central website, it'd be a target for shutdown. But when you run lighthouse, you're just a node in a P2P network that's that's making this possible. So that's that's really it's a different way for people to think, but it's it's the future. And I I really encourage people to give it a try. It's it's Litecoin. I mean Bitcoin you don't go to a central website to trade Bitcoin. I mean of course you can, but the fundamentals of having a wallet and locally and peer to peer in the original way it was conceived. That's really awesome, man. I really appreciate the passion that you have for this. How can people contact you guys to help perpetuate this final goal that you guys are trying to achieve? It's hard for a volunteer organization like we are to get the word out. And that's really what we want to do is just let people know that we're here and that we're, we're going to make this reality. But, but please join us. And it's, it's a community project. We're really always looking for developers, testers, people can help us just reaching out to the community. Uh, we actually run a series of what we call WAN parties. So this is like a LAN party, but it's for testing BitSquare. And if you go on our website, we uh, list those and uh, look at our blog, look at our, our white paper and, and get in touch. Send us an email at team at bitsquare.io. Thanks for listening to episode 185 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by CryptoKit.com, LedgerWallet.com, and personal favorite of mine, 
host of the Bitcoin game Rob Mitchell's BeKeychain.com. Content for today's episode was provided by Andreas, Stephanie, Grant, Richard, and Adam. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and Niles Fromm. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. If you have any questions or comments, head over to the forums at letstalkbitcoin.com as it's become one of my main methods of communication. And if you've got an early token, stop by my BitDrop thread, where I'm several chapters into the first story set in the world of BitDropped, a decentralized, distributed, neutral, and agnostic person-to-person delivery service operating the world beyond states. See you there.